0: Good morning. Our passage today on this Palm Sunday comes from John twelve, twelve through 21, and is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry or royal entry, if you will, into Jerusalem. Let's read the passage together. This is John 12, verses 12 through 21. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. If you've grown up in the church or attended a Palm Sunday service before, this is nothing new. This is a familiar passage, and the trouble with familiar passages of Scripture is that we have the tendency to tune out. I once had a kid in youth group during Christmas say, oh, we're, we're reading this again. And I, and I looked at them, and I closed the Bible, and I said, I, you're right. There's nothing left for us to learn. We, we got it. Uh, that happens, right? We all can have that mindset where we tune out. It's familiar. Some of you could come up here, and you could preach this uh, fairly well. You'd have the facts down. So this passage tends to sometimes be a history lesson. Some zero in on the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. They go on about how mathematically impossible it is for any one man, Jesus, to fulfill over 300 prophecies. It is remarkable. It truly is remarkable, but it's familiar. I'm sure some of you have heard that sort of thing before. Others tend to talk about the importance of the donkey how it was a symbol of peace for a king to ride in on a donkey. It's, it's odd, but it's, it's unique because Jesus never rode on a donkey before this time. So this is important. It's telling us something important. Some focus on the palm branches, the term hosanna itself, meaning save us, help. Lord, help, save us. Again, this is all very important. It's just, it's familiar. So please consider everything I just talked about. That's a flyby of like five sermons I could have preached on this topic. And if you want to hear that sermon, I preached on Matthew last year, uh, the same day, Palm Sunday, and I and I did preach that sermon. So go back and listen to my past sermon on Matthew. But today I, I want to try to focus on something a little different. I want to focus on the shadow that's looming dark over this passage, and that's the shadow of the cross. You see, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem for a reason. And the reason is that his time has now come. Throughout the entire book of John, we are told often the time had not yet come. They come to Jesus and he says, no, it's not my hour, it's not my time, the time's not come. This phrase is repeated over and over and over. And so something big happens in John twelve twenty three when right after his royal entry, Jesus has entered in and he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this glorification, we're told even two verses down, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So you see the donkey, the Mount of Olives, the palms, all the law and the prophets are pointing to this hour. All of it's pointing to this hour and all of it culminates in the exaltation of Christ the King. He says, Tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. So the shadow of the cross, the shadow of the hour has come. It looms over the King of light and it looms over this familiar passage of Scripture. And unless we first truly understand the cross, we will not fully appreciate... Everything else that could be said about this passage, all the remarkable, wonderful, marvelous truths that lie in this passage are only fully realized when we look to Jesus upon the cross. Why is this? Well, it's because we're spiritually blind. We know that we're sinful. We don't have eyes to see someone who hears this message. I could wax poetically about the fulfillment and the prophecies and, and the donkey and the significance, but it won't. It won't matter to them. It'll be foolishness. The donkey is an odd thing. The palm branches, it's just weird. It's foreign to them. And we know it's it's hard to grasp this because the disciples themselves do not get what's happening. Verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, only after the cross, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things have been done to him. Again, in the book of John, there's a contrast between those who are blind and cannot see and those who claim to be able to see and yet are actually spiritually blind. And we see this all the time with the Pharisees who have so much light. They have the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, you didn't even listen to Moses. If you're not going to listen to Moses, I could send back a dead person here and they would even you wouldn't even respond to it. We need the king of light to triumphantly come into our hearts, to come into our minds, to come into our lives and shine forth in power and glory. And then and only then will we see him as king eternal. So as Ron asked earlier in the invocation, as we do every week, we ask the Holy Spirit to come to work a miracle in our hearts, to, to take off the scales from our eyes, to, to, to show us the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and came to set the captives free. He died in our place. He's our representative substitute, as we've been learning about in Romans. The righteous for the unrighteous. And then, and only then, will the King of light, will He shine brightly and will rejoice at His coming. We won't just marvel at it, we'll rejoice. When we understand the cross, everything else will become understandable for us. So, a bit of a long intro, but I have four points, and they're semi-shortish, sort of. (laughs) So, uh, follow along with me. The first point is the king of light exalted. Second point, the king of light humiliated. Thirdly, the king of light extinguished. And fourthly, the king of light radiant. In the passage, things are uh, seemingly going well, on the surface for Jesus and his disciples. The people are worshiping Jesus. They're, they're coming to him. They're exalting him as king. In a rare moment, Jesus is receiving this praise. And, and there's something happening here to the point where the Pharisees know exactly what's going on. And they come to Jesus in Luke, in the book of Luke. And they say, you've got to cut this out. You've got to tell them to be quiet. They're worshiping you, Jesus. And you're not stopping them. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus... Looks at them and says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to be picking up their song. You cannot stop what's happening. This is the hour. This is the hour. You have Galileans coming to worship. You have Jerusalem citizens. And at the end of the passage, even Greeks are wanting to meet Jesus. Tell them to stop, the Pharisees say. And eventually they throw up their hands and they exclaim, look, the whole world is going after. We've lost. We've lost. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Kill Lazarus? What, kill, what are we going to do? We've got to stop Jesus. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And a truer statement they could not have uttered because the king of light's radiance is going to go forth from this tiny little town and eventually it will reach every corner of the globe. How? How? Because of the cross. John 16, verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How on earth? You read this and you go, how on earth is it better that Jesus is not physically with us? Why is, wouldn't that be wonderful if he was here right now? As a, as a child, I thought, wouldn't it be remarkable if every week he just came out for a press conference? And we could ask Jesus these questions and he would address the troubles of the week and we'd have all that. But as I got older, I realized the problem with that is that we'd just kill him again. We'd just kill him again. Be- because the world would go after him, just as it's always gone after him. And darkness hates the light. But you see, this was always the plan. This was always the plan. There was never a plan B. This was, the cross was always plan B. A, the Son of God, Jesus, was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He has to die. He has to be buried. He has to be lifted up on the cross. He has to go to the tomb. He has to resurrect from the dead. He has to be the first fruits of the coming harvest. All of this is part of Christ's glorious coronation ceremony, which ultimately takes place and culminates in heaven, where He sits at the right hand of the Father. On the king of David as the greater David's son. And just as the people here are waving their palm branches, they're doing so ignorantly. They want a a physical earthly king. They want a king that will overthrow the Roman rule. They're ignorant of who Jesus truly is. And unless we gaze at the cross and see it, we will wave our palm branches ignorantly as well. We will not realize the true kingship of Christ. Just as you remember in the wilderness, they held up the brass serpent, and all those who gazed upon the brass serpent were saved, so too must we look upon the cross and be saved. And so now, because Jesus is gone, there's great joy, because we have a representative in heaven, and we have a counselor on earth. We're covered on both sides. And so if Satan tries to accuse us here, No, not guilty. Satan tries to accuse us in heaven? No, not guilty. We are covered on both sides by the blood of the Lamb. The Holy Spirit is with us. And therefore the gospel has no spatial limitations. Think again of the Pharisee's statement. The whole world has gone after him. Consider consider right now the millions of Christians all across the globe. As Ron prayed for the Indonesian Christians who were... There was a suicide bombing outside their church. They were there singing Hosanna. (laughs) And the millions of other Christians, the Japanese, Christians, Chinese, German, Russian, Indian, Swahili, because Christ died and rose again all across the globe, we are singing Hosanna, Hosanna as one body. Not only that, the saints who've gone before us in heaven, family members, friends. They're joining our song. We join their song. The church invisible with the church visible. The angels themselves worshiping the King of Light. Which leads me to my next point, the King of Light, humiliated. 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty, You might become rich. In John 18, 37, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. He's about to go to the cross, and Pilate questions him, and he says, So you are a king. And Jesus answers, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, Jesus' sheep hear his voice. The sheep respond to the shepherd. In obedience and the truth of this passage and much of Jesus's teachings is that if anyone would follow after Christ he must follow him down the path of humiliation in this world he says you will have trouble but take heart for I have overcome the world Jesus says and the beauty of the cross is that not only has he overcome it he he walked the world that he made He shed tears on the world that he made. He bled for the world. And John sets up his prologue in telling us the cruel irony of the entire thing we're about to read in his book when he says, He came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. The king of light came into the world, but the world loved the darkness. So again, people are waving their palm branches. And it's this beautiful scene but we know shortly after they're going to be crying crucify him and we have no king but king caesar you see this is this is sadness intermingled with triumph there are echoes of humiliation even in the midst of christ's glorious exaltation from the people here but we take heart as jesus says he's overcome the world Jesus understands our pains. He understands our hurts. He's able to empathize with us in our weakness, the Bible says. He's near to the lowly and the downtrodden. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And I want to hammer this home. I really want to hammer this home because... The implications of understanding Christ's humiliation on the cross and what he did for us are so massive for the way we interact with each other, for the way we, our souls are healed by the gospel. And if we can understand this, it will be absolutely transformative in your life. So I'm going to tell you two stories. These are two stories from a professor of mine during a counseling class, and they're messy. Um, they're messy stories because we live in a messy world full of sin. There was a woman who came for counseling for, this, for my professor, and she was deeply scarred by her past. She had been at a party as a young girl where she was sexually assaulted by a group of men, and they beat her within an inch of her life and left her for dead. And she recovered physically from this, but years later, mentally, she carried these scars with her. And she had trouble letting men get close. She had trouble with intimacy towards her husband. She felt abandoned. By God. And the counselor encouraged this woman. He walked with her through the pain for many months and he gave her a passage of scripture to meditate on. He said, Go home and I want you to meditate on John 19 over and over and over again. Now, every day I want you to read this and then come back in a month. This is the account of Jesus' humiliation and crucifixion on the cross. So after a month, she returned and the counselor asked her what. God had taught her what she had learned from the passage and she sat there for a moment silent and then with tears welling up in her eyes she said in a loud voice they divided his garments among them they tore his clothes they tore Jesus's clothes they tore his clothes you see this was her starting point to peace The man crushed for our iniquities, who was stripped naked for us in our place, whose clothes were torn and ripped so that we might wear his robes of righteousness. That's Christ. That's the king. And that will heal your soul. Second story is of a young pastor who was abused by his grandmother and his mother And his grandmother would hold his head under water as punishment. And his mother would tell him constantly how worthless of a child he was. And this man uh, grew up to be a servant of the Lord, to be a pastor. And he came to the counselor and he told him that he harbored so much hate in his heart towards these women, towards his mother and his grandmother. And he took great solace in the fact that his grandmother was now dead and was being tortured in hell for her sins. After many months of counseling, the man came back and he was distraught and the counselor asked him what was wrong. He said, I'm afraid to tell you that my mother has now become a Christian and I'm mad at God because she'll never receive the justice for what she did to me. She'll die and go to heaven. A young pastor said this and the counselor paused and then he looked at him and said, Oh, but don't you see she did receive justice. All of your abuse from her hands was paid for by Christ on the cross. And the pastor replied, I could have told all of my congregants that same thing, but I never would have seen it myself. You see, this is the power of the cross. The apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he persecuted. That's the message of the gospel. Reconciliation between God and man, between man and his neighbor. It is healing for your soul. Pastor Stephen Lawson says, At the cross, man was at his worst, but God was at his best. And so the King of Light was humiliated so that we might approach the throne of grace with joy, with confidence, with our heads Held high. So what's stopping you from going to him right now? What's stopping you from running to the cross? Is it it death that you fear today? Have Have you not heard that it was conquered? That it's over? Do you have past scars that need to be healed? Did you know Christ has scars as well? Do you have shame and guilt? Well, the prodigal son had plenty of that. And yet the father ran to meet him. Do you harbor hate towards someone in your heart? Well, let it go. Let it go because forgive just as Christ forgave you. Justice will be done, but leave it to God to sort out. The cross is the ultimate equalizer for all of mankind, which is our leads us to our third point, the king of light extinguished. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is there as, as the Passover lamb. And John is just so good about this, as taking us through the whole Passover ceremony and showing us that Jesus is meant to be the Passover lamb for the people of God. We're taken back to Egypt and the plague of darkness and the death of the firstborn son when the people would have to put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And in much the same way, that the land is covered with a thick blanket of darkness when Jesus is hung on the cross. The sun is blotted out and covers Jerusalem. The song which we'll be singing next week, Christ Alone. Many of you know it, you're familiar with it. And it says this, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. And when we sing it, I can almost promise you we will Get hushed. And we will live under the gravity of that darkness. And then we will come to the next part. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And we will shout that like a victory shout. Because that's what it is. The singer Andrew Peterson says this. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? And if you know the song, we respond by saying, we do. We do. The grave could not hold him. The darkness could not last. The king of light would be extinguished. But he'd come to life again. And he would burn so brightly that the whole world would see his light. We know this is reality because the book of Acts shows us its reality. That when the Holy Spirit comes down in Pentecost, thousands at a time are saved. And history tells us that in the midst of ten waves of Roman persecution, Christianity spreads across the entire known world. What started in that little town now reaches out because he had to die and go sit on the throne. When I was in youth group, I had beloved youth pastors. And one of my beloved youth pastors was this guy named Eric Sparks who I'm sure some of you know. And he took us to go see the new Chronicle of Chronicles of Narnia movie, Lion, which Witch, and the Wardrobe in theaters. Um, you'll remember a theater is a big open area where you sit next to people and one day we'll go back. And I'll never forget the part near the end when it comes time for the creatures of darkness to capture Aslan. They have him and it's an extremely dark scene in an otherwise bright kids movie. They shave Aslan, they spit upon him, they beat him, they tie him to the stone table. And in this theater, which I promise you is opening night, it's filled with youth groups, let's be real, and Christians, okay? You can hear a pin drop at this moment. Why? Because our hearts, our souls were resonating with the truth underneath the story. The story of redemption being played out. In a children's movie and as the white witch raised her dagger to pierce Aslan's heart I'll never forget my sweet youth pastor Eric Sparks he's a blubbering mess at this point he's you can hear him he's blubbering he's crying and he shouts out stop and I wasn't embarrassed because he spoke for me he spoke for us And the White Witch doesn't stop. Because Aslan has to pay for Edmund's treachery. Someone has to take the knife. And so I ask you, is there any other true story more beautiful than this in the world? Can you cry out Hosanna today and understand that? Lord, save us. And that's exactly what Jesus does, doesn't he? He saves us. He takes the knife. And so we worship in the light of that truth. We marvel at the deep magic that the white witch didn't know about. The mystery of which angels long to look now revealed to sons and daughters of God. You see, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And now he's exalted forever. Martin Luther says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Which leads us to our final point, the king of light, radiant. The Greeks come in verse 21 to Philip, and they say this remarkable thing. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And if you keep reading, you're going to notice something very odd that happens. Because Jesus doesn't say, Fantastic! Send them in. I'd love to see them. That's not what he says. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, Jesus' response to this request of the Greeks is this. No. No, you can't see me, at least not yet. You see, there's coming a day, he's going to tell the Samaritan woman at the well. There's coming a day when the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. No temple, no place, no direction of posture is needed. You will speak to God as a friend. That is coming very soon. Think again on, on Jesus' analogy here of the wheat. I want you to picture in your mind this grain of wheat. you have it there? Okay, it's a little piece of wheat. And if I asked you if that what wheat is, that really what wheat is, what would you say? Yes, but no. It's, it's wheat, but it's not the full wheatness that it could be. It's not it's not fully wheat, wheated. And so what does a farmer do? Well, he takes that, that little dead grain of wheat and he buries it and he lets it die. And now if you imagine again in your mind, you can see the blade shooting forth. You can see the the stalk as it takes shape. And all of that was in the grain, but you did not see it. It had to be buried. So the farmer tastes it now, and he husks it, and he takes the grain, and he repeats this process a thousand times. And you see Christ is saying, these men cannot see me yet. There's coming a time very shortly when men and women will see me, But it will be as a result of me dying. And this process of death and rebirth must occur a thousand times. It must occur a million times until the entire earth is filled with the knowledge and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The harvest must be completed. The seeds must die in order to live. And the history of Christian church is filled with this process. The church is built on the blood of the martyrs. Through death into life, through death into life, through death into life. So many sadly come to Jesus, first wanting only the triumphal entry. They think, ah, this is the victorious Christian life. Ah, the triumphant praise life, the life of praise, the life of, of highs. And, and they come with their palm branches. But this prosperity gospel leaves Out the key ingredient of the Christian life, which is death, which is dying to self. In order to truly live, we must die. In order for men and women to see Christ, and I mean really see him, you must follow along Christ's way. You must come face to face with the depths of your sin. You must come face to face with the cross. You must reckon that it is only by Christ alone and him crucified that anyone may indeed be saved. Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. They said this. He, his answer to them was, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so it's through this lens of the cross that we now see the radiance. The radiance of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 for God, who let, said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed where? In the face of Christ. Through death into life, through death into life, through death into life. Alistair Begg, the pastor, he says, there's a magnificent act of divine vandalism that takes place at the cross. And it's the the rendering into the the torn asunder curtain of the temple. And you see, God now dwells with his people. The tabernacle, the temple itself, is now Christ, who is our high priest. He's the one who offers himself up as a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of his people. And And the sad reality of this is that there are people in this world who are still fooling around with the incense, they still have the priests. They still keep coming back with the curtain in place. They they didn't they want the curtain there. Why is that? First Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the Pharisees don't get it now, and they don't get it later. A king who dies, a suffering servant. That's nonsense. And the sad reality is that the Jewish people to this day are waiting for a Messiah who already came. They will not find a greater Messiah. There will be no kinder Savior. And countless numbers of people all across the globe are looking to inanimate stars for answers. They read their horoscopes. They check their crystals. They go to their self-help gurus, their personality tests, their tea leaves, tarot cards, fortune tellers, drugs, mushrooms, Anything that will give them some sort of hope, some sort of answer from God, some sort of push, some sort of healing for their souls. And here in the text, when God displays his love and his thunder from heaven and all of his wrath is poured out upon Christ on the cross, his love for us is displayed in a wonderful act. They look at it and they say, that's foolish. But I'm here to tell you that thinking that stars and playing cards could tell you anything of worth is foolish. It's nonsense. But how many of us can relate to these foolish things? How many of us were once blind before we saw? How many of us loved the darkness? How many of us are still living in that darkness? How many of us this very instant need to run From the so-called wisdom of man and leap headfirst into the foolish things of God. And so what do we do week after week? We preach Christ crucified. We preach grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all glory be to God alone. We cry out, Hosanna, save us. We come with empty hands. We come as receivers and beneficiaries of Christ's riches. I have nothing to bring to the table other than the sin that made Christ's death necessary. I come as an heir to the promise. I come thirsty, drinking deep from the well of God's amazing grace. And we exalt Christ alone as Lord and King. And the great hope that I take every single time... I stand behind this pulpit and the great hope that you should take when you talk to friends or family is that the sheep hear the master's voice and that the word of God never returns void. So if nothing I've said today sparks even a small fire within your soul, then it may not be that your wood is wet and maybe you have no wood there at all. And if that's the case, you need to wrestle with the Lord today. You don't need to waste another minute. You need to humble yourself. You need to pray for God to to take the scales off your eyes, off your heart, to give you a new heart of flesh, this very instant. And I can promise you, because I know Jesus, that you could have walked in this room the vilest of sinners, and you can leave this place whiter than snow. That's a promise. If you would but turn to Jesus and be saved. On the cross, he exclaims, it is finished. What does he mean? He means the ceremonial law, the curtains, the incense, the sacrifices. It's finished. Your sin, my sin, past, present, future, paid for. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The Bible says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through death into life, through death into life, through death into life. And if you know this truth, if you've seen the man hanging on the cross, if you've looked to him for salvation, then when your heart stops beating and you draw your final breath, you will do so wrapped in the loving arms of Christ. And when you open your eyes again, it will be to brilliant, majestic, unfathomable, Light in your own bedroom, in the, in your own mansion that Christ prepared and advanced for you. And you see, this is the room you've been waiting for your whole life—the room you've been longing for, with all your friends and family nearby. And that mansion will be bathed in the warmth and the glow of the King's light forever. Hosanna! Blessed be He. "...who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel."